This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. One of the most important conversations we can be having today is energy. What type should we use? Its impact on the environment, the economy, its impact on politics, on our independence. And nuclear energy sits right in the middle of that discussion. And honestly, fair or unfair, it generates the most controversy. But should it? Silicon Valley is betting on the future of nuclear energy. Our entire naval fleet runs on nuclear energy. Heck, NASA used to send probes to space with nuclear energy. It's an interesting and compelling discussion and generates the most interesting questions. So with that in mind, I invited Dr. Anna Erickson to come and help us to understand what is the conversation about. Anna is the Associate Chair for Research and a Woodruff Professor at Georgia Tech. She received both her MS and PhD from MIT. She has spent her entire adult life in the heart of this discussion. It's important and compelling conversation. So join me as I host Dr. Anna Erickson and we talk about the potential and the risks of one of the most controversial discussions you can have today, nuclear energy. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one. Anna, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for hosting me. So um, nuclear energy is one of those topics. It's one of the few topics where when I, when I ask somebody about it, that almost nobody has shrugs their shoulders, has no opinion. It seems to be this cultural sometimes polarizing, but everybody, usually people like me who have no idea of the deep thought behind it, um, have an opinion or an expression. There's a very strong cultural reaction. Can we start there? Why do you think there is such a strong cultural reaction, positively or negatively, towards this conversation? Well, that's a great question to start with. So let me start with the just a small story here, right? Uh, one of the most interesting things I do is working with kids who are in middle school, right? Mm -hmm. They are not afraid of nuclear. Why? They come in the lab and they said, okay, um, let's learn about this thing. You know, Boy Scouts now have nuclear merit badge, right? So they frequently come to Georgia Tech as a group and mm -hmm. we run activities for them. They're not worried about nuclear. They get to learn within an hour or two what radiation is and guess how I start my lecture to them. I say, don't trust atoms. They make up everything because everything <laughs> in the universe is made up right. of atoms and uh, radiation is everywhere around us. You can't escape it, right? It's, it's in the background. It's from the sun. You basically live in a world of radiation. Um, the reason people find it scary once they grow out of the Boy Scout age, I guess, mm -hmm. is because you can't see it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if the radiation levels are elevated for whatever reason, maybe there's an accident, maybe there's a threat, you don't know that until later when the health is affected. So if I were to pinpoint why the radiation is so controversial, it's that. You mm -hmm. can't see it, right? You know, if there's a fire, you can see it, you can smell the smoke, you, right. you know to stay away. You can't do the same thing with radiation. Right. So that makes us nuclear engineers uh, uh, an interesting cohort, right? Uh, we design systems that can produce radiation like nuclear reactors. We also design systems that can detect radiation to be basically the sixth sense for humans. Mm -hmm. uh, as a radiation detection expert, I can carry things around with me and I know uh, when things get dangerous. So mm -hmm. to me, radiation is, 
you know, like a pair of glasses that mm -hmm. you wear if you have bad eyesight. Right. So if more people can develop the trust in technology, if we can introduce more technology, maybe some chip into your phone that can alert you of elevated radiation levels, you start yeah. maybe thinking about it less um, and trust your senses more. Yeah. Did that answer your question? I think somewhat? so. I, 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 um, although I think it's almost, you know, be careful what you ask for. Could you imagine if we had an app or a chip in our phone or whatever our mobile device is to warn us of uh, levels of radiation, we'd probably be surprised um, what's going on all around us that uh, that we really have. It, it reminds me of somebody, there was a short story, and this person was granted uh, the gift to see in a broader spectrum, almost like supernatural spectrum, right? So you could see the physical world, it's almost like augmented reality. And all of a sudden you could see... <clears throat> Uh, it was a sci-fi thing, but almost like like almost like in the spiritual spectrum. You could see all of these things, and you could see uh, radiation, and you could see things that other animals can see or hear or experience, and you had no idea. It's there the whole time. You weren't afraid of it or um, whatever before, but it's all around you. Is that well, a similar idea? Perhaps, okay. but think of it more like an allergy app. Oh. We live in Atlanta, right? <laughs> don't you have an app on your phone that's alerting you that the uh, allergens yeah. levels are pretty high? I don't need it. It's on my nose. Right. Yeah. Well, we all have it. But uh, the bottom line is information, right? right. Uh, and I, I can tell you we are working on chip devices, in my lab in particular, um, that could be incorporated with cell phones in the future. Um, and uh, actually, one of them is flying on a CubeSat right now. One really? of those shoebox yeah. CubeSats that are in space uh, measuring radiation to provide a baseline for the electronics, right? right. They get radiated in space. But I kind of got sidetracked a little bit yeah. going into more basic. Um, I guess the other aspect of it, why it's so controversial, is the societal impact, right, that mm -hmm. we experienced over the uh, past 70-plus years. Um, so the societal impact is built, of course, on the fact that one of the first uses of radiation that people witnessed was nuclear weapon mm -hmm. uh, in Japan, 1945. And, of course, that uh, created a huge impact of fear mm -hmm. of nuclear weapons because we could see the effects that mm -hmm. were devastating. But then there were a number of other things that uh, were conducted by governments around the world of um, you know, introducing experiments, using radiation without telling people properly that impacted communities, of course, impacted the level of trust into both the technology and how the government handles the technology. I think we are getting uh, to the point now in 2022 that we see that uh, people start to realize that the benefit of radiation may be offset in the fear, and that comes to both energy, uh, of course, the health and uh, space exploration. Mm -hmm. So those are the three main things that we see that um, could be the next drivers of people improving their trust in the technology. Mm -hmm. Of course, the record also speaks for itself um, as far as the safety of nuclear power mm -hmm. uh, and uh, medical technologies. Yeah. Um, let's go, before we go to safety, let's go to energy. Um, I've, I've heard you speak before, um, and you made this, I thought it was a great point. I probably won't do it justice, but it was, it's a, with human beings anyway, our perspective will change when all of a sudden our circumstances will change. We'll say no, no, no to something or um, something's not good or whatever until all of a sudden we're faced with a crisis. And um, 
one of the conversations, significant conversations has been going on for decades now, but it's really going on um, a lot. Everybody's talking about green energy or specifically, how do we reduce carbon output, I think is, is one. I was just hosting a guest yesterday and we were talking about electric vehicles uh, of all types. And um, this person drives an electric vehicle, very pro-electric vehicle. I'm very interested in electric vehicles myself. But they were making this point, look, if 25% of the population went out today and got an electric vehicle, we do not have the energy right now or in the near future to power the grid, much less uh, is the grid infrastructure, you know, is your transformer up the street going to blow up or whatever, different problem. And even when we're pursuing renewable, he is very pro-renewable energy, solar, um, wind, hydro. But they, as Dr. Uh, uh, Sadaway from MIT was talking about, when he was talking about liquid metal batteries, look, that sun produces an amazing amount of energy, like almost incalculable. But it only works when it works. We don't have the, you know, we don't have any storage. And so when the sun's not going and the grid has a requirement, um, we need fossil fuel or whatever to spin up. So in order to fully realize renewable energy like this and to build out the capacity of the grid, we got we got a task ahead of us. We gotta have storage, we gotta have all these other things. And um, both of them have said nuclear energy is one of the ways that makes sense if we didn't have these emotional cultural differences. And I'm not trying to say we shouldn't have them. I just don't know enough about it. But that if you, if you want to not release carbon and you want to gener generate a tremendous amount of power, at, um, at least the technology we have today, with the least amount of impact or very minimum impact to the environment, we should be... Uh, really interested in this. Is that a fair assessment on why we should be changing our mind about it? That's one of the reasons. Okay. I mean, um, energy demands, of course, but also independence from foreign suppliers, uh, yeah. stability. Nuclear power has uh, a track record of providing 98% um, of on-time availability of energy, which mm. means they don't shut down and just stay down. So right. they have scheduled shutdowns for right. the refueling, but other than that, they're available 98% of the time. Right. Uh, this is a very, very good metric to, to look at, right? If you're looking for baseline electricity. And this is how nuclear power has been envisioned in this country, to provide baseline. And then if you have sudden increases, you can rely more on renewable mm -hmm. or other sources of uh, energy, including natural gas. Uh, so, but... Uh, as climate change happening, and we saw events in Texas mm -hmm. last year, that was, mm -hmm. right? Uh, yeah. When the power grid collapsed due to um, a number of factors right. that we don't need to recount right, right now. But the bottom line was that um, people started to rethink the grid. Right. What does the grid mean? Um, do we need those large reactors that are very centralized providing this um baseline power, or do you want to invest in mobile reactors that will be deployed if you have sudden shortage of um, electricity, such as battery reactors? Should we deploy small modular reactors around the country? Um, and how would the grid look like? Do you want to delocalize the grid, meaning that uh, start looking at microgrids? Of course, a lot of those questions, um, you know, they, they require analysis from both societal uh, and environmental justice, right? Mm -hmm. Do you really want to deploy that uh, battery reactor in uh, your neighborhood? Right. Uh, if you put SMR in my backyard, how does that affect the price of my home? <laughs> uh, 
Um, and who would decide that I should have a reactor in my backyard, right? Is right. that fair to me? It feels like a cartoon. Like, what's that over there? Ah, don't worry about that. It's just my right. our little nuclear reactor. So, so that's that's one, right? Uh, then the questions of uh, safety of those reactors come into play. Not just uh, uh, worrying about the market here, but right. what happens to that reactor if it's uh, attacked by right. a terroristic organization, right? right. Uh, what if people that are running it are incompetent and, right. uh, you know, there's a safety concern. Right. So a lot of those things that uh, people trying to answer through engineering uh, and design, uh, basically looking at new reactors. I know we're going to talk about future technologies right. later, but the new reactor is envisioned to be safe and secure, right? Meaning that uh, it can shut down on its own if it detects that there's a danger to reactor itself. Um, also designed to have features that alert humans that there is a reactor and what radiation levels about. In fact, um, I was recently contacted by somebody who wants to know, hey, how can I put things around the reactor that sense radiation at all times to tell people that the radiation levels are not elevated? Hmm. So kind of an example right. I gave you with the cell phone, right? right? If you live nearby, what makes you feel safe right. around those things? And how close do you want them? So current nuclear reactors, they have a quite large exclusion zone, meaning that there's a perimeter around them, so people cannot cross into that. It's a security zone. Um, I believe it's 10 kilometers as a radius. So you can imagine that's a pretty large chunk of land that sits between the community and the reactor. So what do SMRs would look like, right? right. How much exclusion zone do you need? Um, and then who will run them? Who is the customer? Uh, is it uh, private? Is it government? But then I think you, you brought up a good example of, you know, not just renewables, but also energy consumption for data processing. If I can pick on yeah. QTS, right? Let's uh, do it. How much, how much energy um, do you require, say, per day? Yeah. What does it look like? Is it one reactor? Is it the big reactor? Right. Do you want a nuclear reactor uh, to make it But you know, cheaper? that brings a great point. Just in, I'm, forgive me for interrupting, but it is, um, there is a... A study came across my desk probably five years ago, four or five years ago, and I laughed at it at the time. And it was somebody proposing, it wasn't nuclear per se, it was um, should we, should industry, whether it's data center industry like what we're in or similar, big Tesla facility, whatever, should they have local power plants? And in particular, if you're in the West, in particular, if you're in the West Coast, because a lot of their grid is in disarray. It's um, uh, just even being kind and generous. Changing weather patterns has caused fire damage and all kinds of other stuff. But um, there, there was this talk, and I thought, why would we go back to the 1800s when railroads had their own little local plant? You had to have specialized artisans to work on it and whatever. We moved over to the central station starting, I believe, in Chicago and out from there. Why would we go back to that? Anyway, it was this really interesting um, place because we want to, you know, where people are growing may not be near the grid or the infrastructure may not be able to handle it. And now when you introduce, and now just in the conversation the other day, this person um, that I was talking to is from Oregon or lives in Oregon and said, look, we're not necessarily opposed anymore so long as it meets certain criteria of not just efficiency, but um, environment, you know, has environmental conditions around it or whatever, and we're able to maintain it and operate it safely. Is it okay to start having a 
think again, instead of doing a central station approach, can we do these modular approaches? And with technology that we have today, does that solve the problem? If we're about solving the problem, maybe these little micro um, grids or whatever aren't the solution. But more and more people are talking about it. And so now you're mentioning nuclear might be one of those pieces that could do the nucle- uh, the uh, micro thing. Well, so when you think of nuclear energy, it's extremely dense compared to any other energy source, right? That's what makes it so unique. If you think of a pellet, a single unit of nuclear fuel, which is maybe about an inch tall, it's not like even Like a Lego? Any... About the size uh, of a Lego? Yeah, it's... it's it's different. It's a okay. cylinder, right? It's right. a very small cylinder, smaller than a bottle cap, right? Okay. At least in diameter. Okay. So how much energy is that equivalent? We're talking about a few hundred barrels of oil, um, this enormous amount of uh, right. natural gas. Right. So think about how much energy is contained within this little pellet, and the nuclear reactor is composed of multiple of those pellets, right? And depending on the size, you can make it relatively small, you can make it quite large. But that's that's how um, the nuclear energy distinguishes itself, mm-hmm. right? It's very compact and it, you can rely on it for a long time. Mm-hmm. Deploying a single small modular reactor based on the fast reactor technology that's, you know, we uh, invested so much quite heavily in, but uh, in this country at least we haven't, we haven't uh, had one commercially yet, right? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, liquid metal cooled reactors, small footprint can run theoretically up to 30 years without having to refuel or shut down. Obviously, you'll need to right. shut down for maintenance, right. etc. Um, and then there could be material issues that we don't know about right. at this point. But that's in theory, that's how much um, energy uh, you have to spend. In fact, all of the nuclear power plants around the country right now, which we have about 100 in this country alone, right? Mm-hmm. It's about 400 in the world. Mm-hmm. We barely tap into their potential. Most of the, what people call waste, which is, again, another negative side of nuclear energy that Mm -hmm. people perceive, that waste is not waste because we barely spend maybe 5% of the energy contained in that fuel, Hmm. only because of the type of reactors we utilize here. So the unique um, opportunity that nuclear energy provides is a very small footprint, reliable operation for many years, and um, it's a basically one-time investment if it's done properly, right? Right. So when you say we're only utilizing 5%, like I keep getting told I'm only using 5% of my brain and my wife would say probably 2%. But I'm curious, is it, maybe I didn't understand you exactly there, is it because we're just wildly inefficient with the fuel that we have? And if we were able to be more efficient, we could get up I mean, could you imagine if we could get that to 85%? Like we would eliminate not just energy now and dramatically reduce carbon uh, output, but like like for the next 15 years, when we think of data consumption and all these, when I see 8K TV, when I see CubeSats that you were talking about earlier, like all of these really cool things where they all require energy, some form or the other, either in a battery or whatever, where's the energy coming from? And it sounds like, well, if we can get more efficient in this area, that's where it could come from. Well, there's been a lot of research um, in the past and still ongoing research on how to uh, optimize this energy consumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just has to do with the reactor design and how we process that fuel. That's why I don't like using the word waste, because what's waste for someone may be treasure for others. Right. Uh, current nuclear reactors in this country are all uh, light water reactors. Um, they have an interesting history. 
Um, it's uh, historically uh, um, the reliance on light water reactor technology came from the Navy. Navy invested a lot of money into, right. for short, LWR reactors. Right. That's what nuclear Navy operates on, and that's how we went in that right. direction commercially here. Other countries actually um, invested into liquid metal technologies like Russia. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they have a number of liquid metal reactors called BN. Mm-hmm. Um, so the light water reactors and liquid metal reactors are fundamentally different how they utilize um, fuel. Okay. So Is it the same fuel? It's not the same fuel. Okay. Uh, in fact, uh, there are a number of different categories that we can discuss, both okay. in terms of materials, from oxides to metals, but also in type of enrichment, meaning how much concentration of uranium do you need to provide. And right now, the limit that we can enrich the fuel is 20% because of proliferation concerns. Mm-hmm. Current reactor separated 5% enrichment, and even then, after the fuel is discharged, um, there's still some elements left that we can utilize if we can process them mm. properly. That couple of complications with that spent fuel that comes out of nuclear reactor is highly radioactive, mm. meaning it's uh, very difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one. Mm. And then number two, in this country, we do not process the fuel we store it until it's... Uh, uh, until we have some sort of repository ready, which right now we do not. So most of the spent fuel is actually stored on site of nuclear reactors in specialized containers. Why, why, would, why would we or would we not reprocess? I get, I'm not familiar with why we would store as opposed to reprocess. Is it spectacularly dangerous? Is that a cultural resistance to... Well, it's both. I okay. mean, it's technologically challenging, although not impossible. We've done reprocessing before. Japan does it routinely, for instance, but uh, in a lot of it is politically motivated. That mm-hmm. includes the storage, right? Sure. Um, if you remember Harry Reid a couple uh, decade ago, more than a decade now, 2011, uh, in Yaka Mountain, yeah, spent nuclear fuel storage initiative that was promptly shut down. Um, but interestingly, we've been thinking about it as a industry, right? Nuclear mm-hmm. engineering for for decades. In fact, nuclear power plants get taxed towards that storage, but they haven't seen one yet, so that's an interesting twist again. <laughs> Nobody wants the storage in their backyard, right? right? Nevada didn't want it, so where do we put it? Right. Ha- has Well, I think it's one of those things which is, um, uh, and I want to come back to the power in just a second, but I think it's one of those things where, you know, as we said, it's <laughs> on the one hand, it's, yeah, I don't want to, um, there are a number of people, at least in my circle of friends and family, there are some groups that are really interested in the conversation because of the impact, as they understand it, to carbon output. But there are others, sometimes both groups, but a hugely growing group um, that are a lot in Texas, some here, that want what they would call energy independence. And they don't even necessarily just mean like national energy independence. Like if if we don't have to go outside of our borders for clean, inexpensive energy is kind of the idea. And maybe an argument could be made that this is not clean or inexpensive. I don't know, but we could have that discussion. But that's their idea is if we can have energy independence, it frees us of so many, uh, and this isn't a political podcast, so we're not going to go there, but it, it, it clears us of so many obligations that sometimes you have to, um, in an international world, if I need a resource that's not re- 
readily available or inexpensive, um, then I have to make trade arrangements with people that maybe I wouldn't normally do that with, or I, it would be, it would, our relationship would look different. And that's probably true of all society. And so if they could have some level of independence and drive the price down, they would be, um, uh, we'd be very interested in that. Not directly related to nuclear energy, but one of my neighbors, I've talked about this on my show before, you could not get to talk about solar to save his life. Not interested, zero interest. Starting about three years ago, he's now working on how do I get solar in my home? He's not a prepper or whatever, but we've been through ice storms. We've lost power in our area a couple times. And his way of thinking is if I can build a solar array um, or solar infrastructure that's affordable and I could power my home and only an emergency when I have a problem with this or during maintenance, do I switch to the grid? I would much rather do that. That fits my lifestyle better in the same way, whether it's solar or nuclear. If we had the ability to do that for ourselves, it seems to me to be common sense. I agree. I always wanted to build a nuclear reactor to power my home. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it's hard to get uranium, you know, yeah. <laughs> as a private citizen. Um, I, I am with him on that 100%. In fact, uh, the same thought occurred to me a number of times. Unfortunately, in Atlanta, we got too many trees, so it's right. hard to deal with the solar panels mm -hmm. here. But the reactors, you know, um, yeah. they don't need the wind power. They don't need solar. They can do it all day, all night, and right. uh, quite reliably. So um, I think this this type of thinking is more common. And uh, this this state in particular has seen more reactors being built, right? So uh, Vogel units, um, uh, we are very active and pro-nuclear here, mm -hmm. so which is a great state to be a nuclear engineer in. And I, Texas is moving in the same direction. They uh, learned a lesson. Mm -hmm. They have a very interesting grid structure, of course, as you know, yeah. uh, in the state how they, uh, they're not connected to other grids and it's very difficult for them to rely on others to help mm. them through difficult times. So uh, there are a number of other examples we can come up with. Alaska. Alaska is an oil exporter, but oil is incredibly expensive in Alaska. Mm. Um, same with natural gas. So a few years ago, they considered investing in the nuclear technology. There was a project called Galena um, project where Toshiba looked into building a small modular reactor in one of the outposts there. Mm -hmm. in, in fact, Alaska just released last year a, a new roadmap report um, going towards nuclear where they've done an assessment of various reactor types that could fit the benefit, um, could benefit the, the state, including remote areas. So you can see that a lot of uh, uh, states, even within the same country, following that model of saying, how can we rely on our grid better? What can we do to improve it? But then the same true for Europe right now. I know you brought up Germany and yeah. France earlier. Uh, Germany has been in the process of shutting down its nuclear reactors. I think they still have three operational. Well, they are rethinking that now yeah, because uh, because of their dependence on foreign energy right. supplies. And uh, France is enjoying 80% of its electricity produced by nuclear, right. which makes them relatively more energy independent than other countries in Europe. So we see that uh, uh, trend now, both through Europe as well as the United States, of how can we rely on other technology other than hydrocarbon? Right. I have um, two very dear friends. So while this is anecdotal information, it comes um, honestly by these uh, friends of mine. One is from Frankfurt, and um, in fact, she and her husband just moved to uh, Valencia, Spain, 
I'm angry at them. But anyway, they uh, I've known them for almost two decades, I guess. And um, my other f- uh, very good friend, uh, my scuba dive, my scuba master is um, from France. And it, it's with, the, with just the world developments over the last five years and things in the news these days, we've had a number of conversations around energy. And with Christian, my friend from France, a few years ago, we were talking about nuclear power and he, and it was, he didn't so much speak of it from an independence perspective. He said, because we have inexpensive energy, it allows us to fund a lot of social programs that the United States does not have. And he wasn't trying to say, do it the way France does it because France is a, you know, we're a very pluralistic, complicated, big country here. It's different. But he said, this is one of the benefits of having this very inexpensive, relatively speaking to Europe and a very, um, uh, you know, gives us freedom, gives a number of things and funds our programs. And now they're getting another benefit because they are, uh, some of my really good friends are from um, Manchester, England, and their family is rethinking coming to visit because their energy costs have gone up in the last year, almost a factor of seven, middle class, lower middle class to go from a heating bill of a hundred pounds a month to 700 pounds a month is we're not running our heat the way we were. And this isn't a whose fault is it? It is just a reality of the cost of uh, fuel and and disruption, wherever the disruption comes from. Um, my friend from Germany um, and her husband, he's from here in the States, but she's been telling about the impact to their family there in Germany. And it is, it's a hard time. And they're very anxious because they get so much of their energy from outside their country. And... Um, they thought it was a great idea 10 or 12 years ago for their reasons on why to emphasize different technology than nuclear. Uh, and now they're like, hmm, we're in a spot. We're in a significant spot. And so uh, I just know that these conversations are taking place. And and I, what I don't want to do is pile on and say, ah, you should have done. That's not helpful. And it's a waste of time. But how do we get independence? Because energy, historically around the world, if you have to rely on somebody else, you're also then subject to the supply chain interruptions for whatever reason. Well, nuclear energy got its own uh, issues, right? You got to buy that fuel somewhere. um, And obviously, fuel supply uh, is an important topic here. Where Uh, do you buy it from? Well, there are a number of countries that uh, produce uranium. And in fact, uh, we produce uranium. It's the question is, uh, what do you do with it, right? Because it has to go through a number of steps before you can use it in nuclear reactors. Russia is one of the main exporters, which is, of course, affected uh, the global supply right now, and right. people are starting to rethink, where do I buy it from? Right. Um, but <laughs> I was laughing uh, a few years ago when I, uh, I heard the controversy around U.S. selling its uranium supplies, and I'm like, well, it's much cheaper for us to sell it to somebody else, let them deal with fabricating that fuel and buy that fuel back. <laughs> it's all about, uh, you know, right. the, the uranium that we mine out of the ground, is, uh, it's not very useful. Right. Uh, and there are so many steps that you have to go through before it's useful. One of them in particular is called enrichment. When it goes through thousands of centrifuges, it's a huge plant, mm. huge facility, very expensive operation. So, um, yes, the... The uranium we use in nuclear reactors and uranium that gets mined are two very different things. Mm. Uh, so there are a number of suppliers. I know you mentioned thorium previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, could thorium be viable fuel? Theoretically, yes. There have been reactor designs based on thorium as well. 
If things come to the point where we have to use it, we can certainly utilize it. Uh, it's got a number of drawbacks um, that uh, we probably don't have time to discuss today. Just uh, be be aware that, yes, you, it can be used, but um, may yeah. not be the optimal choice of fuel. Can we use the plutonium supplies that we have in this country in abundance because we are a nuclear weapon country? Yes, we could repurpose them. In fact, people have done that blending technology of uh, weapons-grade plutonium into civilian fuel. Um, so that's been demonstrated before. There are a number of ways we can utilize nuclear energy, uh, so I, I wouldn't worry about the supply too much. Um, it, we're not going to run out of it anytime soon. But then if we do run out of uh, fission supplies, then we can talk about fusion later on. Um, I'm going to come back and ask you a question about plutonium, and we are hopefully going to get to um, fission and fusion, but uh, or versus fusion. We were talking about waste earlier. I don't want to go past that. It It is um, certainly when I talk about nuclear energy to the people that are very resistant to it, they will mention a couple things. They'll say, well, it creates all this waste and that'll kill us or three things. Or um, there could be a, an attack of some sort um, and terrorist attack, domestic terrorist attack, whatever. There's going to be an attack and, and now this is going to be used against us or it's going to create a a dirty area or some other thing. And the, or the third is there'll be some sort of uh, accident, like what we saw in um, Japan uh, a while ago, what's happened in the US, um, uh, Chernobyl, what, all different circum types of accidents, but an accident that causes uh, some consequence. But it comes back to sort of the waste or run around or runaway nuclear um, output. How, how safe, I want to talk about the waste for a second. How, for lack of a better word, how safe is it? Like, do we put it in a vault, in a vault, in a vault, surrounded by another vault? Like, how do we, at least here in the States, um, where we maybe we could talk about more authoritatively because we've got more control over it, is the waste and what are the protocols around it to make sure we just don't run into, um, short of an act of God, you know, Godzilla coming out of the ground or something, uh, that we mitigate that as a risk to where, where you would feel comfortable having that energy source for your family and your children and your grandchildren and your community. Like I I'm fine with nuclear power in this area because I know we're managing this risk. Well, so there are a number of points that you made here, uh -huh. right? So there's waste, then there's a safety, right? Uh, right. Both surrounding the waste as right. well as the nuclear reactor. Then there's an act of terrorism, mm -hmm. right? possibility of such mm -hmm. um, and then of course natural disasters so let, let's talk about waste first I okay. think I already mentioned that briefly that we don't centralize uh, waste storage right now right um, anything that comes out of nuclear reactor gets put in specialty design casks after it goes through a cooling period and the reactor pools so it is part of the territory of the nuclear reactor <clears throat> and it's a okay. uh, territory that's guarded and right. has exclusion zone. Right. It's actually positioned quite close to the reactor buildings. You can Google that. It's called uh, spent fuel waste casks. Um, you can see that uh, they look pretty benign. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing indicates that there's something glowing or brewing. Right. They are designed to host the fuel that's cooled off, cooled off enough that uh, you don't really have a possibility of it melting or causing... Um, release of some sort. Mm -hmm. So every nuclear reactor has those casks. We've had them for uh, 50 plus years um, and they work, right? 
Is it ideal solution? No. We, nobody likes dealing with the spent fuel, but that's what we have right now, and we got pretty good at doing that, right? So that's waste. Um, the second one is the safety. So m most of the current reactors, as I said, have exclusion zone for safety reasons, right? Um, and the communities, uh, they, they get information about uh, running reactors, what's going on on site, and if there are any concerns. In fact, that information gets publicly released if there is some sort of criticality, which means, you know, off normal operational condition. Uh, that becomes public information. Um, actually, I get contacted by reporters every once in a while saying, right. hey, can you decode this for us? Right. Was that anything serious? Are they not telling us something? That's usually local newspapers. Pause for one second. Do you ever, just for fun, just start, no, 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 you can't just do start laughing? Don't say anything. Just go to the closet, get a suitcase, start packing, say, let me call you in an hour. You don't do that even a little? Wouldn't the, that be funny, just the, for a second? Funny, right? Maybe Until not. they publish it. <laughs> uh, remember, I'm what trying. What happened? What they do? Put it all in a suitcase and just let me call you in an hour from Iowa. Okay. I'm trying to be a nuclear energy yeah, advocate. Of course, here. Uh, yes, of course. <laughs> but yes, I mean, as funny as it would be, I, I don't, I don't think that's a right. good no, idea. No, I'm that. sorry. That's the comedian me. That would right. not be funny for you to do that. Uh, well, Stephen Colbert show maybe. <laughs> Forget invited. Um, yeah. So. So that's about the, the safety, right? right. Uh, like I said, they try to make it transparent. And I um, have to say, sometimes it's hard to read those documents, but uh, nonetheless, they try, right? right. That's a requirement. Um, and most of the new designs of nuclear reactors are supposed to be passively safe. Passively safe, meaning that the reactor itself, through laws of physics and engineering, can go into shutdown mode if there is a elevation in temperature or unplanned spike in radiation. Uh, in fact, most of those reactors have that requirement, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess I can iterate on that a little more because most people think of Chernobyl, right? right. Uh, that's the runaway reaction where reactor became uncontrollable and obviously underwent... Um, Hydrogen explosion, which is what people call nuclear explosion. It wasn't nuclear, it was hydrogen explosion there. Uh, but nonetheless, so if you think about Chernobyl design, that's an, an interesting reactor. It's, um, we don't have those in the States, so nobody has to worry about them. But it's, it, it has a coolant, light water, just like we use in our reactors. Um, we call it light water to distinguish it from Canadian designs, which use heavy water, which is uh, enriched uh, deuterium instead of just the hydrogen that we have in regular water. Okay. Is so, one easier to work with than the other? No. So none of them, I, I would never call it easy. They all have served very different functions. So okay. the Chernobyl tap reactor um, utilized water to cool it, but also graphite to slow the neutrons down so you can go through the chain reaction. That's what we rely on in mm -hmm. nuclear reactors, right? In the U.S. tap reactors, we use both water to do both slowing down as well as heat removal. So what was the advantage of uh, Chernobyl reactor? Well, first of all, it was its simplicity of the design. So it's a huge reactor, but it doesn't have metal vessel around it. It utilizes very different technology to remove heat than what we do here. And of course, that contributed to safety. What's the benefit? Well, there are two benefits. Um, Number one, it's a very fast construction time, right? Because you don't have all the safety mechanisms around it. Um, and it's modular, so you can just whip it relatively fast compared to the reactors we have here. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the 
that way you can have the electricity in a remote region, mm. you know, create a huge source of electricity really fast. The other upside is production of relatively clean plutonium that could be used for military purposes. And remember, that was Soviet, Soviet Union we're talking about. So right. that's during the Cold War and the nuclear arms race, right. right? So plutonium was a big deal at the time. Right. So what do you sacrifice? Well, you actually sacrifice safety. If you have a type of reactor that's working based on graphite, right? If it starts to heat up, that graphite does not have the same properties to send the reactor and shut down like the light water that we have here. Mm. If you try to heat up a reactor here, that water expands. So if you know anything from thermodynamics, um, yeah. water expands, turns into steam, and becomes very inefficient at slowing down the neutrons, so you drive the reactor back into shutdown, right? Mm. Okay. That's not true for uh, Chernobyl-type reactors. The more you heat it up, the more it wants to heat up because of the graphite that's right. present there. So that's a big, big difference. So when people say, well, Chernobyl happened and that's what happened, the probability of that happening with reactors here and more importantly with the mm. modern reactor designs is very small. Right. So we simply cannot compare the two. Maybe I gave too many technical details, right. but I no, really want perfect. people to understand why yeah. there's a big difference. You can't compare them. Um, and in fact, after Chernobyl accident, most of this reactor type, um, Russia, Ukraine, where they were still operational, they're actually some still operational to date, if you believe it mm. or not. Uh, they were modified to address some of the safety issues. Yeah. Um, how well that was done, I don't know. But uh, like I said, that was a big lesson learned for the industry. Right. And we never want to repeat it again. I got to believe most people, in all seriousness, I'm, you probably believe this as well, although I don't want to put words in your mouth. We, nobody wants their babies at risk. Whatever the no. purposes of the plant, if they're doing a dual purpose of uh, weapons-grade material, you know, I think it's dangerous. At least when I first thought about Chernobyl more seriously, and we talked about this off-air, and I watched the um, docudrama, even knowing, um, I read some of the critiques of the docudrama, said, look, a lot of this was enhanced to uh, make a compelling show. So don't forget that. Right. Let's not demonize a whole group of people. And believe it or not, there were a lot of government, um, in addition to the professors, that were trying to help and slow down. And as much as anything, just because of um, the way communication and systems work, there was complication. And I, I don't think they were just being generous. That seems probably true because who wants to, whether it's their citizens or whatever, they just, it does, it's not good for, even for a government, for its um, nation to have that problem. Um, but a lot of times what I'm discovering, Anna, in any complex system is that um, even if the design isn't perfect, here in the data center business, Usually we have we have different tiers. The Uptime Institute has established tiers, tier one, tier two, tier three, tier four. And they usually have to do with redundancy in the oversimplification. That's usually what it means. And so a tier three data center oversimplified basically means I have a spare tire. If I need four of something, I've got a fifth. So that if one of those drops out of line, I can't sustain two failures of generators or power sources or whatever. But I can sustain one and I've got something that will almost always um, mechanically um, is automated. It will f you know, something will switch. A uh, heavy piece of gear will switch or an electronic thing will switch and it'll keep, I can sustain one hit, I can't sustain two. Tier four is there's two of everything. If you need one plant, you've got two. If you need four tires, you got eight tires. I can, everything, it's basically a mirror. 
But what we've learned is that a tier two data center, which has little to no redundancy, there might be a couple components that are redundant. Like in our cars, we've got a spare tire, but we don't have spare engines. We don't have spare gasoline. So we've got multiple doors to get in and out, but not everything is redundant. But if it's really, really, really well maintained, a inexpensive um, car that goes through constant maintenance, constant um, checkups, all the fluids change always is statistically exponentially more reliable than a much better design that's not well treated. And so the design in and of itself, it could be a simple design for Chernobyl, but if it's re- if the systems are really maintained well and you just don't have a, a catastrophic failure, it's probably fine, I guess is what I'm getting at. And so um, anyway, I don't know why I went down that tangent except to say that you know, a lot of times our designs don't get changed or we don't want to spend the money to change until we go through a disaster. Well, I think you hit a uh, nail on the head there. Hopefully because, in all those words. Well, let me, let me yeah. point out something that you haven't said, but I'm extrapolating here. How many crazy designs out there right now people working on? I mean, how many startups do we have? Probably sure. close to 50 different nuclear startups all coming up with the, the best reactor. We have the best system by our next generation reactor. We are raising millions of dollars. Uh, it's incredibly diverse right now. And the question is, how diverse do you need it? I mean, we've had the same reactors operating here for multiple decades. And in fact, a lot of the problems that we have is just from lack of knowledge as opposed right. to anything else. Uh, here's an anecdote about maintenance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, nuclear reactors are licensed to operate to about, what, 40 years, and then you can extend the license. You can go through justification and show Nuclear Regulatory Commission that your reactor can go longer. But NRC, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, requires reactors to go through maintenance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, there are a set of rules how to do it. So how was that designed initially? Well, they said, what can go wrong with the reactor? <laughs> um, we're going to create a set of accident scenarios based on the biggest failure. Right. So we're going to pick the biggest pipe in our power plant, and we're going to create a guillotine break. If you know what that is, it's like we just chop it in half, okay. and you oh, let okay. the coolants escape, right. and now your core cannot be cooled, and everything is just crazy. Right. Well, how often do you have that happen in the industry? Well, almost never, but what they discovered over the years is that it's not that big guillotine break that kills the plant. It's dust by a thousand paper cuts where a lot of things go wrong and maybe redundancy wasn't there and maybe they weren't properly checked on time. So over the years, the industry migrated from that scenario of, oh, what's the worst thing that can happen to, hey, where are the weaker points that we need to either do more frequent replacements or introduce better maintenance, you know, do more frequent checkups, uh, right. add more instrumentation, etc. So that mentality changed over years. And when I look at the, the reactor development world right now, I mean, this is just the U.S., the startups I mentioned. Just think about the world. China is going crazy. They're trying to build one of everything. Right. Um, so... What is the benefit versus risk here, right? If you have a, a lot of diversity on one hand, you can utilize all this potential of different coolants, different fuels, different materials. Maybe you can 3D print the reactor. Uh, on the other hand, you have very little knowledge about them right. and how they'll behave in real life and what could really go wrong. So it's to me, there's an optimal, um, optimal approach to that where... Maybe we shouldn't invest in 50 designs. Yeah. Let's pick a few and really zoom in to see 
uh, how we can optimize the design, etc. And the government realized that too. A few years ago, they started a program called Advanced Reactor Development. So they're funding various players that are more mature around the country, and uh, they invest more in the technology. They pair them with national laboratories mm -hmm. to enhance fuel and materials development, etc. So it's happening, and we see that. Uh, but I think the point you brought up is a very critical one in nuclear industry. Um I want to come back to that in just a second, but first you inspired me, um, so thank you, but you inspired me in this thought, and it was, um, I fly a lot, not as much as I used to, probably probably 20 domestic flights a year now, used to fly a lot more than that, and um, I rarely, if ever, think of a plane crash, Lord, please don't take me out, And what other, but what scares me the most about the when I do worry about it, uh, the most terrifying crash I ever saw was this Alaskan Airlines was flying from Mexico back up to it would number of just a regular old flight, like from Atlanta to Florida, you know, all the time. Every day we've got these same little 737s. Well, this plane was flying back and it had just come out of maintenance two days before, three days before. And halfway back, it flipped upside down, would only fly upside down. Um, they uh, worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. It's this famous crash. Eventually, it crashed into the ocean. Everybody was lost. I don't worry about the double bird strike that they had to land in the Hudson because that's just uh, when your time is up, your time is up. Like I just uh, completely out of every system control, every person's control. Like it was just a bad luck day. Um, or maybe a terrorist bombing. You know, you've got all these systems in place to the best of your degree. But the one in Alaska terrified me because it had gone into maintenance. And um, in the, you know, in airplanes, they have system after system after system, not just redundant systems within the plane, but they have redundant systems on the ground when you do maintenance. And as it turns out, what happened was there's a bolt, there's a screw that turns in this particular aircraft design. I don't know if they're still flying, but there's just a single bolt that would turn the, um, oh, the Aerleon or whatever it is that would give it its up or down and its stability. And when they did the post crash of it, because they found the plane, they got it up. What they found was that thing was stripped, but they were able to recreate it in just enough that it had been stripping from the time it left being refurbed in Washington, I believe, down the flight down and was partway back before it finally sheared. And so they're like, how could this happen? Because these things are engineered so specifically and meticulously and it had gone through this maintenance. Multiple people had signed off. Well, here's what they learned had happened. And I'm going to screw it up, but this is the big idea. Somebody came along and was resupplying the bins that you use to grab your nuts and bolts from. And um, some of these things are, I don't know what's smaller than a millimeter, but millimeter in difference, if not smaller in thread and size mm -hmm. or whatever. And they accidentally put this fractionally different bolt from one bin to the other. What's supposed to happen then is the maintenance person is you come along and when you take a bolt out, there's a there's a way for you to measure before you ever put it on the aircraft to make sure it's the right thread, it's the right fit. Everything matches. And you put it through a routine. Well, if you're in a hurry and you're stressed because you got to get maintenance going, and this is before COVID. This is two decades ago or so. 
they eyeballed it because I've done this. Oh, and by the way, I'm a highly certified engineer that has an impeccable safety record. And they're not trying to be um, unsafe. They're just moving quick on this one bolt and they eyeball it and they double check it and then they install it. Then somebody comes and they sign off on it. Then somebody comes along behind them and double checks their work. So that's the third person involved in this system and on and on. There might've been more checks and balances, but there were three or four checks and balances. What they were able to trace back was the wrong bolt got in the wrong bin. And because human beings over time got in the habit of well, there's never been a wrong bolt in that thing. And now my first 7,000 times I did test it in the little tester, but now I can eyeball it. And, and look, it went in just fine. And, and look, Dave's installed 22,000 of these airplanes. And so I'm looking at Dave's work and I'm signing off and off we go, right? All those systems failed, the bolt snapped and it crashed. So when you're talking about these systems, that's what terrifies me is that the redundancies built in don't work, and somebody, a cascading series of failures, not just the technology, uh, because that bolt worked exactly to the strength it was supposed to, but it was in the wrong place, and we people didn't catch it. We call it human factor. Yeah, it's human factor. So that said, in my business, um, and a lot of emer a lot of businesses now, we use this thing called digital twin. Are you familiar with digital twins? Of Nuclear course. is big on digital twins. So I'm curious about when you talk about these um, um, future programs, these pilot programs, like if I want to introduce a new airplane material, a new composite, make it lighter or whatever, if that plane, when they're out flying out over Puget Sound or, you know, out over the Atlantic or whatever, if it falls apart, you know, they test it in very small craft, then they taste it bigger, bigger, bigger. If it falls apart, it's out over the ocean, except for in its landing pattern. Nobody else is affected um, when they physically put it into production. It seems to me <laughs> that if you're testing, even if you put in, quote, small nuclear reactor, when you take it from the digital twin stage, so Formula One does this, data centers do this for a wide variety of reasons, not only to how to build an efficient, effective design, shoot, restaurants are doing this now. Um, but if you fail in your restaurant, well, you're bus or can't get around the counter very good. And in data centers, we build the wall inefficiently and we got to redo it when it goes through inspection. It seems like when you're messing with something like energy, nuclear or otherwise, that um, when you move from the digital twin stage into the real world stage, how do you test those things to get an outcome that you want and minimize the consequence of it not working right? Well, great question. Um, well, first of all, Let's talk about how many reactors we've built around, right? Those are test reactors. Yeah. Are you familiar with Idaho National Laboratory? No. Uh, so this is one of the Department of Energy National Laboratories. Okay. DOE has, I think, 15 national labs. Um, in fact, National Nuclear Security Administration oversees three of them. Right. So Idaho National Lab is obviously in Idaho. Right. And it's a huge facility. Um, it, uh, I think, by footprint, is probably one of the largest uh, we have two nearby, uh, Oak Ridge and Savannah River, close to Georgia, right? But Idaho hosts over 100 of reactor prototypes, and we don't talk about big giant reactors. We're talking about, you know, people trying to test small things. How small is small? I mean, they, they're pretty small. Size of a car? 
No. Um, it, it really depends on the reactor. There's okay. some that are uh, in the form of a loop when they test coolant. There's some that actual reactors. In fact, uh, quite a few national labs have research reactors on the um, lab sites, like Oak Ridge has uh, a HIFR reactor. It's uh, uh, one of the research reactors that people use to test materials with neutrons. Um, and Idaho has advanced test reactor, which is another one. Uh, a lot of university campuses have test reactors. Mm. MIT, Oregon State, uh, Texas A&M, University of Texas, Austin. So those are just to name a few. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of the materials that are being developed, if you want to test them, you want to test them in environment that's proper, right? right. That's why we have test reactors. Right. Um, we also use those test reactors to train people on how to operate things and what does it mean to operate nuclear reactor. So digital twin does not necessarily mean the same thing in nuclear as it okay. means in other industries. Yes, we design nuclear reactor using digital twin, but all of the materials, if you want to change a material, it needs to be qualified by going through a relevant condition. Mm. And if you design in a fast reactor, then perhaps you go to a country that has fast reactors like, um, like Russia, mm -hmm. uh, where they uh, have facilities available for people to test materials. Mm -hmm. So... I would I would be a little cautious to call on that direct uh, you know digital twin moving into prototype. There are right. a lot more steps between um, digital twin uh -huh. to the actual prototype uh, involved and with other industries. Yeah. So I just want to make it very clear. Okay, it blows my mind that there's so many startups pursuing that. But why? Now that I think about it, why wouldn't there be? I mean. Um, and I, before I go any further, I also want to talk about your lab deals with proliferation and some really cool stuff there. But just to finish this, and I, so I want to get into that. I know we're going to, we don't have a whole bunch more time available to us. But um, if you think about it, we are not a civilized world without energy. My kids would say without internet, but you can't even have the internet without energy. If we don't have electricity, if we don't have energy, we did, we're not, you know, we're back 200,000 years. Um, shoot, we're back 300 years, but it, but might as well be 200,000 years. Like we just, um, nothing works. And so why wouldn't there be all of these startups in this space? Uh, absolutely. I mean, think about going to Mars that uh, Elon Musk wants to do. Right. Well, good luck doing it without nuclear energy. Right. Um, so we've discussed civilian use so far, but uh, let's not forget the fact that uh, the space will require energy uh, in the form of both uh, propulsion as well as once you're there on the planet, you will need energy. Where right. are you going to get it from? Um, right? Yeah. And unfortunately, there's probably not a lot of oil drilling on Mars right. that's right. possible. So you got to bring your own energy sources and <clears throat> reactors would be uh, the solution to do that. And we can spend another three hours talking about that yeah. topic alone. Maybe another time. I did go to the Humans to Mars uh, Summit this year. And one of the things that I found absolutely fascinating off of the stage when we were talking about, we talked to a number of astronauts and other people. And in the beginning, they said, you know, we thought we would be doing all of this solar stuff. Um, but to get the material to the planet to build something actionable, like to sustain a colony, not Mark Watney from The Martian, but actually a colony, and to send people back and to flourish, 
it just the amount of energy to get that there and then to build the infrastructure and the time to build it as opposed to a small nuclear reactor. And at the time I was like, what do you mean a small nuclear reactor? And they said, you know, our Navy for all intents and purposes runs off a small nuclear reactor. That's correct. And if we could put something like that on, and then they reminded me, I didn't even know that, I don't know how much NASA uses it now, but once upon a time, there was a lot of focus about small nuclear reactors for their probes. Do they, do they, is nuclear power still involved in the oh, yeah. program? Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> Los Alamos National Laboratory leads a project called CRESTI. <laughs> it's it's an acronym. <laughs> you can Google it. Google Crusty Nuclear Reactor, and okay. that should show up. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's it's a very interesting design uh, that they are proposing to use for uh, nuclear power in space. So if you have a few minutes, go ahead and Google that. It's pretty cool. It's a reactor size of a trash can, basically, right? So that's how compact they are, yeah. um, and they can provide power to do a variety of things. So historically, NASA have been looking at uh, uh, radioisotope generators, uh, so that's different than nuclear reactors. They don't utilize fission mm. reaction. Uh, it's just a radioactive decay producing heat or electricity and also, of course, a completely different uh, uh, type of reactor, but they've been successfully deployed and used by NASA. And they're also useful for other applications like remote battery. Right. Again, density is not as high as fission reactors, but uh, higher than traditional sources. Uh, so people start looking at a number of other applications beyond submarines. We're talking about uh, putting floating reactors in water, like you were saying, uh, if something happens in the middle of the ocean, nobody right. would care. Right. Uh, so that's sort of another philosophy that people are trying to do. Right. Of course, there are a lot of questions about it. Once you put it in the ocean, who owns it? Right. Uh, how do you sell your electricity? Yeah. Um, you know, what are the set of laws that they will fall under? Uh, so lots of interesting things that surround nuclear that people don't typically think about. And uh, I got to say that I'm, um, I'm not happy about what's happening in the world, of course, energy supplies, but I am happy that the nuclear is becoming more of a dinner table topic as opposed to something horrific that people never want to mention. Right. Um, and hopefully, hopefully we can... Uh, inspire people to look more into that technology and trust the engineers that uh, are actually trying to work real hard to make it safe and secure. What I am really enjoying is that they're being invited back to the conversation. I'm all about, there may be a reason why, it, in spite of us, you're an advocate, I'm ignorant. There may be people that are um, as credentialed, um, that could sit on stage with you and and you guys could have an honest, not antagonistic, but an honest conversation about why we should or shouldn't do any particular technology in your areas of expertise. It seemed like forever, this part of energy generation was not invited to the conversation. And I feel like, now that's just, that's spectacularly ignorant. Let the idea compete, be respectful, but compete and challenge it. And if it cannot withstand the argument, then we... Um, then we, with knowledge, set it to the side. I mean, that works in, in my mind, in politics and in religion and human behavior and social adjustment as we need to do these things. Is the things that were the norms 10 years ago or 100 years ago, are they still the norms today? And in some cases, yeah, they should be. In other cases, maybe things have changed. And so we adjust them and we, and we you know, as free thinking, I'm a freedom-oriented person. People, we, we do that. I'm, I just, you know, I want... Um, 
I want to be I want to be able to hear that conversation and I I am hopeful. Here here's what really one of the things that really got me thinking about this was and I don't know the credentials of this person but it's a TED talk. I don't remember his name, but it was really interesting. He said, I've helped raise over a billion dollars for this renewable energy. And I am not against either the big idea for this particular renewable energy or the renewable energy itself. But what I've realized is I'm going to have to cover half of Southern California with panels or whatever. I'm not sure what the consequences to the environment that's going to be just covering the land. I don't know. Or to the wildlife that are there. Two, um, what happens when it's time to harvest these things, when it's time to recycle or repurpose? Again, he's not against it. He's like, look, I'm trying to get to a certain amount of wattage without, a, um, without this much carbon emission. How do we do that? And he said, when I just remove my emotion and I walk through the math, I end up back at energy. And so he is on this journey of educating himself. And this is probably a four or five-year-old TED Talk now. Um, and of course, if it's TED Talk, obviously, it's got to be factual. But he just really got me thinking about what have I dismissed as it relates to energy or whatever that I haven't paid attention to. And I'm, I'm finding that more and more people, whatever their motivation, are coming back to the conversation at least to see, is this something we can pick back up? And, it, and I'm, I find a lot of people are very interested in it, whatever the different motivation is. Well, that's a very interesting point. There is no energy source that has people being very passionate on both sides, right? People are either very much pro-nuclear or people are against nuclear. And why are they against nuclear usually is because of nuclear weapons. Right. And I'll be the first one to say I personally think nuclear weapons need to be abolished. We right. should not be having that. It should not be... Um, to extinct a people to seems like... To deliberately build weapons to extinct the entire Earth multiple times is insane. Right. Uh, there was a reason back in time why that was happening. There's still a reason now. Uh, we're not going to get into that too right. much. It's a, a right. whole other topic of conversation. But uh, unfortunately, it, it, we have to coexist with them at least in the near time. Right. Um, so... And people do have legitimate concerns. What if you take this nuclear material that's fueling your civilian nuclear program and turn that into uh, materials that can be weaponized? North Korea is a good example that uh, even a, a country that's isolated mm -hmm. and technologically not very well developed can invest money and effort and mm -hmm. actually get something out of it. Mm -hmm. um, so it is absolutely a legitimate concern, and I uh, hear it. Mm -hmm. But like we said, uh, sometimes the debate is hard because the emotions run high, mm -hmm. and it's hard to convince people that, uh, you know, just because I'm pro-nuclear energy, I'm also anti-nuclear weapon, and you can be both. <laughs> absolutely. This is, a, this is a world where, you know, we recognize the advantages that nuclear brings. We also realize the catastrophic uh, consequences of nuclear weapons. Right. So, um, and part of my work, what fuels my laboratory is that intersection. We want clean power. I'm not going to call it green because, like right. you said, it's uh, kind of falls right. in that gray area. Right. It's a clean, that's non-carbon emitting power or low carbon emitting power if right. you factor all the mining and other things. Right. Um, but uh, we also want to make sure that people that get into nuclear energy, people that work with nuclear reactors, have the best interests of the humanity, right, mm -hmm. at heart. And we develop technology that allows us to track nuclear material movement, uh, understand if uh, something is being smuggled in the country. We worked with the Department of Homeland Security for many years. 
as well as National Nuclear Security Administration, primarily looking at the technology that can help us uncover if there is a misuse of nuclear weapon as opposed to working on the weapons directly. So we um, primarily work on detector sensing technology. Um, we also look at the reactor designs and give recommendations of, you know, what if you use this type of fuel in these conditions, um, would you create material that's more attractive for proliferators? So being pro-nuclear in our lab means that uh, we design technology that allows uh, companies, the government, to understand how secure and safe the material is, mm -hmm. right? And uh, hopefully convinced that nuclear power should be most widespread if we can keep it safe and secure. How do you detect material? I'm fascinated by that. Like, how do you, um, you know, you just walk around with your phone app that we talked about before. Like, how do you, does it have to be a significant amount of size? What's the technology behind it? This is a great question. So, if you had to visualize the amount of material that's enough to create a nuclear bomb, what would it look like in your mind? What comes to your mind? I've seen too many sci-fi things. I would think this something the size of a softball. Correct. That's it, right? It's the size Four of a softball. paid off for me. It's a few kilograms. <laughs> Just a few kilograms of material we're talking about. So now imagine that's hidden in a 40-foot container. I'd rather not imagine that. Well, that's terrifying. That's, that's terrifying, but that's what Homeland Security is trying to think, right? right. So they, they want to understand what are the most horrific things that could happen, how right. that can be smuggled, and how do we detect that? Right. So part of the technology that we uh, design is based on called passive detection, means mm -hmm. that all of the nuclear materials emit radiation. So the idea is, can you design technology that can sense it? So be your sensor, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're an inspector, Homeland Security inspector, you can walk around with that sensor and you can see if there's elevation. Now that works with some materials, it doesn't work with others. Like, mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, some materials don't emit enough radiation. So you mm -hmm. can put shielding around them, you can hide them. In this case, we design uh, what's called active technology, meaning we can utilize a source of radiation, external, like x-ray. Mm. Everybody in, in this audience had x-ray, I right. believe, right? Yeah, uh, sure. Every time you go to dental and they want to check on a cavity, you get an x-ray. Right. My kids had x-rays before they were four years old, I right. think. <laughs> so uh, everybody knows what it's like. Nobody's really afraid of it, right? right? Now, if we take this type of source but increase in energy and intensity, we can shine through the containers, right? right. And we can theoretically see things through. So... I'm oversimplifying it. There right. are a lot more nuances to that technology, but they've been deployed. Right. The Department of Homeland Security has been doing it for um, a decade now. Uh, they, there are commercial companies that actually design this type of technologies, and uh, you know we uh, we use them at the borders. Yeah. So it's not uh, science fiction. They exist, and I'm. Um, Happy to follow up on that at a later time if you want to talk more about that. Yeah. One of the things, just by way of comment, that I thought was really interesting that your lab also published and you talked about this is we have to be sensitive when we're scanning for material. We can't just go through and blast because there is human smuggling. There are yeah. other things that are going on. And so that is also in our mind. We want to do no harm while we're, we're looking for our, a material that could be a threat. But there's these complicating factors and we've Correct. got to take that into account. Yeah, that's um, that's very very much true. We have to be aware of the fact that we are in fact using source of radiation, right? right. Hopefully, people that uh, administer X-ray are trained so they don't blast with the necessary X-rays. Right. Right. Nobody needs that extra radiation. 
Uh, same goes with shining through the containers. I want technology that is safe for humans on one hand, or relatively safe, right? Uh, does not deliver sickness as a result, but allows me to uncover special nuclear materials and is fast at the same time. Because if we're talking about portable A, for instance, where millions of containers arrive every year, right. how much time do I have to scan a container? Well, less than two minutes, preferably right. 40 seconds. So it has to be fast, reliable, and low dose. And that's certainly very much an engineering challenge. Right. When you, if you were to do a scan like that, would it tell you if there, it will it only tell you if there is um, nuclear material or can it tell you, for example, there's, there's a lot of carbon in here and then maybe that's people or is it just looking for a particular signature? So the newer technologies we've uh, been developed uh, that are being developed in our lab in particular, I know other people have been working on it as well, allows you to discriminate material. So let me give you a simpler example. Sure. This is, again, medical x-ray. This is real technology. Uh, if people are getting a brain scan using x-ray, obviously we have soft matter that we're interested in scanning, but also there's bone. Maybe there's a bone fracture. Maybe you want to look at the brain. Uh, so modern technology has what's called dual x-ray energy, which allows them to map differently different types of tissues and bone. So that's what we're trying to do, right? If it's a very heavy material like metallic materials or special nuclear materials, we want to discriminate them against something that's soft tissue uh, or frozen peas. <laughs> Because this was a legit question we were asked right. once. What if you take your special nuclear material and put it in a giant container of frozen peas? Right. What will you see? Right. And it turns out it's difficult unless you create this discriminating ability. So yes, we work on that type of stuff. That's hilarious. If I, I know we're, we're two minutes, and so I'm not going to ask you what's the future, but I guess my question is, um, one, I sure hope you will come back on our, we got a dozen things we haven't even gotten into that I'm really interested in and I think our audience would benefit from. Um, but like, it, do you feel like there's momentum coming back to having this conversation? And if so, what does that mean? Does that mean we're going to expand the plants we have? Does that mean we're going to add more plants? Or, or is the jury still out on whether we're going to embrace uh, getting full advantage out of this energy source? It's, a, it's hard to speculate, right? So first okay. of all, let me tell everybody that uh, today is when we're recording, it's October 20th. You, yeah. can, you can edit that out yeah. if you want, but... It is also Nuclear Week, Nuclear mm. Energy Week. So right. thanks for hosting me during Nuclear uh, Energy Week. Thank you for coming. Very, very exciting. Um, and this is also the week where we host a lot of students from Georgia Tech campus mm -hmm. in nuclear facilities, and we tell them more about nuclear. So people are interested. Um, we've seen increase in Boy Scouts that want to get nuclear merit badge. We, people come and talk to us on campus because they want to know more about Vogel plants mm -hmm. that are being built right in the South. So... There's a lot more interest from the community, from the government. There's the Infrastructure Act invested quite a bit in right. nuclear reactor development. Right. So, and then on top of that, we get by the way a bipartisan bipartisan fiber infrastructure, nuclear and energy infrastructure, among other sources. I thought it was a remarkable thing in this age of contention. I I agree, it was remarkable, <clears throat> um, and the things are only gonna. Increase in energy demand. We talked about it briefly here, but think about Bitcoin mining. People yeah. people talked about investing in their own nuclear reactor just to offset the cost of energy right. that's required. And also how to remain carbon neutral, whatever that means. Right. We know that there's a right. flow definition of carbon neutral. Right. But 
nuclear really allows you to be not just carbon neutral, but offset other carbon right. production. So I think there's a, uh, it's a good time to talk about it. And I certainly am very happy you invited me to discuss this topic, hopefully alleviating some of the concerns and fears people might have and getting you more excited about this incredible energy source that um, I don't frankly see how we can continue developing and uh, remain on track with the climate change policies without nuclear in the mix. I don't see how we can, our imagination set free for things like the multiverse and a future world of, <clears throat> you know, electric vehicles, highly efficient, getting off of the planet and getting to other planets. If it's not nuclear, it's not another energy source we know right now that that isn't also at risk to other environmental conditions. And so, you know, there's um, there's a phrase in the military that says you can go to the you can go to war with the army you want. But most of the time, you got to go to war with the army you got. And, right. and all I mean by that is these are the technologies we know, and we've got real things in front of us, geopolitical, environmental, or whatever. So we need to find a way. If it's not this, tell us what else it is that has the most energy output with the least risk that is so well-researched. Um, I, I think that it's, uh, it's certainly front and center in the conversation. Well, and for those... Of folks that are still concerned about the waste as mm -hmm. a result, uh, let me point out a couple of things. The advanced reactors, fast reactors in particular, being designed to solve some of the waste problem, to mm -hmm. reutilize the fuel, right? Mm -hmm. Is it in the energy mix yet? No. Is it being designed actively? Yes. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned for that. Um, so hopefully that helps with some of the waste issues. We're also looking at fusion reactors. We haven't talked about fusion because the saying is that fusion is always 30 years away. Right. It's not quite true. Um, there are quite a few startups in fusion now. Right. Uh, some of them are raising a lot of money, getting attention. And now if you want to talk about source of energy that, that is really clean and does not produce the same waste, uh, fusion is your choice. Right. I mean, it has its own flows, right? Right. You're still using neutrons to drive that reaction, so right. there'll still be activation and waste produced, but not at the same level as the current reactors, right. so much cleaner. Right. Well, I have a whole page of fusion and plasma and whatever, but we are out of time because I need to get you back to campus. For the Nuclear Energy Week. For the Nuclear Energy Week, but uh, hopefully in the near future, um, we can make it easier for you. And uh, thank you for fitting us into your schedule. I know it's been hard, but I really appreciate it. And I know this is going to be a popular podcast. People are going to have a lot of questions. If they want to find out more about you, we'll have links below. But where can they find you and information about your lab? Well, it's very easy. Um, anybody can Google my name and Georgia Tech, and you should see a bunch of different uh, resources, including the lab okay. name. And I will send you the links for the laboratory and also some of the non-proliferation non initiatives that we've been taking over the past few years that we haven't really talked about, but there's a lot. A lot of excitement going right. on. Fusion on proliferation, our next conversation. All I right. appreciate it. Hey, everybody, if you've enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Erickson, please like, share, subscribe, and comment. And we'll see you next time on the QTS Experience. Take care, everybody.